Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled Authority. One of the most glorious moments of Scripture is nestled right at the end of Matthew's Gospel account, where Jesus declares that all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. And then, wonder of wonders, he gives to the church a grand and glorious commission to go. But many of us operate our Christian lives in such a way that we try to go ye therefore without realizing the authority which Christ has bequeathed to us as ambassadors and messengers of the glad tidings of his grace. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. When we start dealing with the issues of authority, you start traipsing into territory that can be uncomfortable for many of us because there are spiritual powers that be, and we like to refer to the clean or the white powers, the light powers of the kingdom of heaven, and we don't really like to deal with that which has been cast out and driven out, and it's the dark powers, and yet we need to understand what we have authority over. And so we have to go into some of these territories, which can be a little uncomfortable at times, and yet they're still necessary. If I was sitting on a park bench, and there was a lake in front of me, and someone was drowning, what should I do? What would I do? Well, if you see someone drowning, you would respond. You would do something because you have capacity to do something, and that is to rescue them, to help them in some regard. Now, if I was a cripple, did you know that I would appropriate that situation a completely different way? I would yell for help. Hey, hey, someone's drowning. However, I'm not, and therefore I can do something. And if any of us has the capacity to do something and doesn't, did you know that even in America... It is actually the legal classification of it. It's the charge of murder to sit on a park bench and watch someone drown. Is that the strangest thing you've ever heard? It's actually a charge of murder. It's called depraved indifference. It is something that even the courts of America, and whether the justice system would actually enact this or not and, and, and play it out is, would remain to be seen. But it basically says there is a way that you should be, and we all know it. This is a depravity. This is a twisting of humanity beyond what any of us in the society can handle. And so you would be charged with a crime for doing nothing. Isn't that strange? Have you ever heard the statement, he who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins? Well, there you go. You see, it's actually written into the code of Scripture. When you know what you ought to be doing and you don't do it, well, that's sin. As we go through this message, you're going to realize that as Christians, there are certain things that we are supposed to be doing. And many of us cry cripple on it. It's like, hey, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. And this is one of those messages that's very uncomfortable because it shows you that you have it. You've been saying, oh, I can't walk. And then suddenly God says, <clears throat> try those legs. What? You can walk. Do it. Respond. You have a job to do. No more depraved indifference. Authority. Ephesians 6. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now what I want to focus on in this is not necessarily, I have really no desire to talk to you about principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of, the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. I don't want to give them any more airtime than they deserve. 
When we talk as Christians, we talk about the glory of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the only reason we'll ever, ever discuss the powers of darkness is to put them in their proper place, to not be intimidated by them, because many of us are fearful of the powers of darkness, and so the only reason we would ever have to address them is to bring clarity to the position we have in Jesus Christ. So the key word I want to focus on is palais. Now, in this scripture, that word is hidden, and that is to wrestle. And so it's interesting, but there is an active engagement. It is like a form of entering into a contest. It's actually even the concept in the Greek. It's entering into a hand-to-hand combat and contest with some other party. And so the term is palais, wrestling, a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other and which is decided when the victor is able to hold his opponent down with his hand upon his neck. Isn't that strange? So we're not doing this with flesh and blood. This isn't our engagement. It's to go hand-to-hand with each other. Our wrestling match is with spiritual powers. And this Greek word seems to indicate that we are engaged in some kind of It's not a game, even though that's what it's like. It's like a contest. And the winner is the one who has pinned down the other and basically has a chokehold on him, says, you can't move anymore. He's defeated. And this is what we do. We participate in this. We actually are trained to be wrestlers as Christians. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So we have the same concept, the pulling down. That's the idea of the wrestling. And so we have weapons. We have been entrusted with something for this contention, for this combat, for this contest. And that is with these weapons that we have, we literally can throw down the enemy and we can bring down his powers. Isn't that amazing? Some of us actually aren't that excited about hearing about this. There's whole sectors of Christianity that lean towards the conservative, by the way, I lean towards conservative, that have a tendency to dance around these things and not want to get too close to them. I'm not exactly sure why, because the moment you begin to deny the realities of the spiritual realm is the moment you're under their thumb. We must understand that we are engaged in a spiritual battle so that we win it. I don't want you to study the enemy. I don't want you to spend all your time trying to make denominations of uh, dark angels and what their names are. I don't care about that. We were joking uh, at Ellerslie the other day about, you know, there's all these things. You ever heard the, the statement of the, the people that have a demon under every doily? And everything is demonic, and everything is something to do with the darkness, but they're constantly fixated on what darkness is doing. Instead of seeing God under every doily. Instead of seeing God everywhere. And then they have names for everything. I remember this one pastor that said, and I want to cast out the spirit of stupid And you know what? There is something that is rather stupid in the people of this earth today. And I would like to cast it out too, if that's the way it works. (laughs) However, to try and name everything, I don't think is necessary. To overfixate and study it, I don't think is necessary. I think it's necessary for us to understand our weapons, to understand our position in Jesus Christ, and to understand what we are equipped to do and what we shouldn't put up with. And that is the keys that we are given in Scripture. The showdown in the jungle, a missionary uh, to Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, was sharing this story. And I, I tell you what, it is quite profound in, in regards to what we're going to talk about today. But 
it's this tribe in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, and they were crying out for a missionary to come to them. How many tribes there are that still are around this earth that are actually asking for missionaries and have none is shocking to me. I, I may be entering into a little series on missions because I am being so stirred at a very deep level. I mean, ironically, I run Ellerslie Mission Society, and I feel like I'm being awakened to missions. Have you ever felt that, where the thing that you spend all your life on, you actually wake up one day and feel like it's so far beyond anything you've even dreamed of before? And so I, in my study of missions, I've been reading and, and listening to all sorts of missionary stories, and I've just been stirred afresh. It's like, that is right. That is precisely what we need to be doing. And so here's this tribe that was clamoring and crying out and pleading for a missionary, someone to tell them how to, one of the common things in the jungles is how to die well, die with peace, because usually they're tormented by demons at their death and they're screaming. And then they, they hear about these Christians, men that believe in the, the, the clean spirit, the white spirit that die in peace, even with a smile on their face. They want to know that God. They want to know that spirit. They know spirits. They understand demonic powers because they are possessed by them. They are completely controlled by them. They see them. They hear them audibly. And so to them, it would be an absolute joke to say, oh, yeah, we, those things don't exist. It's like they're ruled by them. They know it. And so they were crying out for a missionary, but all the American missionaries or the, the foreign missionaries, there just aren't enough to go to the needs in all these jungles. And so they actually had one tribe that had raised up pastors, and so they went to this tribe and asked them, do you have any pastors that are able to be sent forth as missionaries? So this is literally a tribe, a tribal man, was sent forth as a missionary to another tribe. And I don't remember his name, but I, but I think it was Guatano, and so that's what I'm going to call him, okay? And I, I may have to correct this in the future, but, and sorry, Guatano, if you're hearing this. But his name was Guatano, and he was the happiest man. And in the jungles, that's a very rare thing, is to find someone that is full of happiness and smiles. It is a very depressed and oppressed area. It's constantly demonically oppressed. And so he comes into this village. He didn't speak the language, which is such a funny thought to think of another a tribal guy coming into a village as a missionary. Doesn't speak the language, has to learn the language like everyone else would have to. And so he's just serving this community. But he's more inclined to understand how to do it. He doesn't, he's not making the mistakes that the typical American missionary would do when he comes in because he, he understands the tribal mentalities. And so he knows better how to serve them. And he knows better how not to offend them. And so he is actually winning over this tribe. He's singing all the time. He's constantly walking around with a spring in his step and a little dance in his step. This man is full of joy. And he has something. He's constantly giving to them, serving them, fixing their things, and, and helping them in whatever way he can. And now he's beginning to win the entire heart of this village. Still doesn't even hardly speak the language. It's, it's, he, he barely has it, but he's been studying it and studying it. So now he's getting to the point, and it's almost like God prepared him just to the point language-wise for the contest. But now comes the contest. The witch doctor in that village is the one lone holdout. And he hates and despises Guatamo. And so it's time. And because he's losing his followers, he's losing some of his credibility. However, this is the man that wields the powers of darkness in this village. And he's not too happy about this. So in the open air, in sight of everyone, he steals one of Guatamo's chickens. And he makes it very clear. Breaks through his fence, steals a chicken. Sort of like, hey, do you guys see this? This is the contest. 
I'm taking one of Guitano's chickens. And so this is a pretty big stir in the, the tribe. And so they call forth a council and a tribunal. I guess that's a perfect way to describe a tribunal. And so the chief of the tribe, they're in the center of the village, and the, the chief of the tribe is saying, Rotano, I'm so sorry that your chicken was stolen by this witch doctor. Uh, and for the sake of justice, you, O oh witch doctor, I don't know his name, will give two chickens to Gautamo. And is, is that all right with you, Gautamo? And Gautamo says, I don't want his chickens. I don't, would you want a witch doctor's chickens? Because uh, <laughs> I don't want his chickens. Uh, and so then he says, you don't want his chickens. Uh, how about uh, three chickens? You give three chickens to Gautamo. And is that okay, Gautamo? I don't want his chickens. I don't want his chickens. Well, <clears throat> and everyone's sort of astir. He doesn't want chickens? And so, well, then what do you want? And everyone sort of leans in. He says, I want the man. That's what he said. I want the man. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> well, uh, how does that work? <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? And everyone is clamoring around. Going, what does he mean? What does he mean? And then he says, I want him to bring out his bag of witchcraft into the open, into the center here of the village. And everyone shudders. A bag of witchcraft never sees the light of day. Ever! No one has ever seen it. Even the witch doctor himself would never bring it out into the open. Even the witch doctor doesn't ever look inside of the bag. That's what he requested. That's the due payment. Bring it out into the open. And so even the witch doctor is cursing as everyone's like, oh yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, and the witch doctor is saying, I will curse you, I will curse you. The demons will have you if you do this. And they forced him to do it. Aren't you interested? Isn't this an intriguing story? And so the witch doctor goes into his tent and is forced by the village to bring out his bag of witchcraft into the center. And he sets it in the middle and Gautama walks out to it. And everyone's like, what is he doing? He's actually approaching this bag that no one would ever dream of getting near. Because this is the powers of hell right here. Everything that they fear and have dreaded. And he picks it up and he dumps it out. Out come fish bones, pig bones, rat tails, uh, rotten berries, bark from trees, just a little pile. And everyone's just gasping. No one has ever seen this stuff. It has never been out in the light. And he comes up to a piece of bark, sticks it between his teeth, breaks it. Comes up to the berry, sticks it on his tongue, throws it down to the ground, takes one of the fish bones, breaks it. Oh, it's pretty disgusting, isn't it? He goes through every little piece, and he looks at everyone around him. And he says, I have touched all that you fear. And notice, nothing has happened to me. And then everyone leans in. And he says, now I ask that he would hold my book. And they have a Bible, a New Testament translation of the Udani tribe. And the witch doctor is trembling. He didn't want to hold the book. And everyone is like, yeah. Have him hold the book. <laughs> Gautamo touched and handled everything of darkness and proved it to have no power over him. Now you hold the book. So the witch doctor is forced into the middle and forced to hold the book of the man who does not tremble before all that is in that bag. Well, this man was changed. This witch doctor, the next day, 
went and fixed his fence, would do anything, always look for opportunities to serve Gautamo. He ended up gaining the man, not just as uh, someone who would be willing to do whatever he could to help him, so lest he would have to hold the book again, but he actually gave his life to the God of that book. You see, who wins? In the contest of spiritual powers, Gautamo's battle wasn't against the witch doctor. It was against the powers that controlled the witch doctor so that he could win, so he could win the witch doctor. You see, we are not subservient to what is in that bag of darkness. I know that the world around you shudders, and even you shudder, because certain things have never been out in the light. We don't touch those things. However, our engagement with the powers of darkness will prove that they are lesser, and they are under the authority of Jesus Christ. The bag of witchcraft, the rat tail, the monkey teeth, the fish bone, the bat wing, the rotten berries, and the tree bark. I know it's disgusting. It's darkness. However, you ought not to fear. The next day, all the villagers came to Gautama and watched him. And he says, I'm fine. And they go, you're not fine. There's no way anyone could touch those things and still be fine. And they watched him all day long. He had, he had his wife make him a meal so he could eat in front of them. He said, see, I'm fine. Day after day, and guess what? That village was one for Jesus Christ. Why? Because he proved the authority of one who was greater. He literally was able, in that contention, in that battle, to throw down the powers of darkness in the midst of that village. Listen to Colossians 2, and you see Jesus doing the same thing at the cross. And having spoiled, which means disarmed, principalities and powers, he, Jesus, made a show of them, or he exposed them to disgrace openly, which means frankly, freely, and fearlessly, triumphing over them in it. You see, there is something that Gautamo represents. It represents the nature of Christ at the cross. There is something that is being demonstrated there that is awe-inspiring, most of us as Christians do not understand how to walk as Gautama walked. In fact, we would call it craziness. And yet, you can't question the fact that this man's life has something that every single one of us knows we need. We need that sort of confidence in our position in Jesus Christ. How do we deal with Satan? Well, we throw him down to the mat with the Christ nature intact. Now, there's something I put at the end of this line. I could have just said we throw him down to the mat and pin him down and choke him. However, there's actually something that we need to weave into this message, and that is there is a way to properly wrestle. The enemy wrestles a certain way, and God wrestles a certain way. God never defies or defiles his nature when he combats, when he enters into engagement. You know the cross was a perfect fulfillment of his nature. He never once violated it, even though he crushed the head of the serpent. Even though he was working violence on the powers of darkness, did you know that he was still truly God? And he never violated that nature? However, the enemy cannot help but be the enemy, and he is vile in every regard. We cannot bear the nature of the enemy in coming against the enemy. We still must bear the nature of God. And so we throw him down to the mat with the Christ nature intact. If any of you have been harmed by someone, and then you see them being on trial or in a... a a judgment chamber of any kind, and you see them being thrown into prison or uh, receiving retribution for the crime, you see there's a Christian way of handling that, and there's a demonic way of handling that. And to truly laugh over their spoilage of life, to laugh over their destruction is a very, very dangerous thing.
But to understand the nature of God in, in judgment is very, very important. So in 2 Peter and Jude, we have this very awkward statement. And I have to admit, it's not an easy one to handle biblically. But it's like a parallel, and they say almost the exact same thing in two books of the Bible, which are canon, and they have the authority of God Almighty behind them. And this is talking about the worst of the worst behaved people on earth. And it says, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the, in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. There's this concept in both Peter and Jude that talk about these characters, these lust-driven characters that are rebellious towards authority. They despise authority. And that seems to be an attribute of those that are on the wrong side of the nature of God. You see, when you're on the right side of the nature of God, the way you handle authority, for instance, the way you handle our president in this country, is a defining attribute of your Christianity. I don't know how many of you are in stride with the president of the United States right now and go, yeah, we need more of that. Could we go another term? it's highly likely that many of you would say, you know what, if we could get him out, let's do. He's not really in agreement with our Christian principles and the way we would probably want this nation to be going. At the same time, how we would treat him, even though we might not vote for him, is very important. If he were to walk into this room, do you know what I would expect of us as Christians? That we would honor him? That we would pay him tribute as our president? We honor his position. We do not despise authority. We show honor to his position. We don't honor him because he's perfect. We honor him because he's in a position. Your father might not be perfect, but you still honor him as your father. And so they are presumptuous self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. What is that? Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. And then we look at Jude, and it's going to say the same thing, which will help us understand what that just said. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, and they reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. A dignitary is going to be one in a higher position authoritatively. Yet Michael the archangel, so we're talking about one of the highest positions in all the heavenly realms, Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Michael is contending with the devil. He's wrestling. However, how he wrestles needs to still bear witness of the nature of God. And so how we go about showcasing the authority of heaven on this earth is actually just as important as showing the authority. So what does it look like? Remember David sneaking into the camp of Saul? David is the rightful king of Israel. Saul is rejected, and yet what does David do? David, in a sense, honors Saul. He doesn't submit to Saul. He doesn't let Saul push him around. However, he has a certain deference and an understanding of who Saul is. And so in the middle of the night, I don't know if you guys remember the story, Saul and all his mighty host are asleep in a camp. David sneaks in with Abishai, and literally steals Saul's cruise of water and his, his spear. I mean, it's actually hilarious. He doesn't harm Saul. That isn't his position. That isn't his responsibility. But he demonstrates that he has authority over Saul. He demonstrates that God is honoring his position. When Jesus is facing off with the devil in the wilderness, well, how does he do it? You know, I'm, 
it's a funny thing, but we're talking about the God of the universe dealing with this nobody, the devil. And yet, Jesus still has a certain decorum and honor in how he handles himself. Jesus at the cross, never once violating his nature, but bringing judgment on all that is dark. With the noblesse oblige of heaven, that's a French term for how you go to battle. If your opponent is running, you don't shoot him in the back. There's a certain honor that governs, well, we call it the noblesse oblige throughout history, and Christianity sort of has that. We're engaged in a battle, but we function honorably. The enemy doesn't. We showcase to the world that the way we battle is different than the way he battles. He's he's a cheap shot artist. We're not. We know our position and we walk confidently in it. So here's the simple way of saying it. As a good and noble king, this is what we are. We are positioned in Christ and we have authority. And I'll explain how this works. And so we are composed, wise, respectful, honorable, slow to anger, but deeply passionate about justice. So say you're sitting... You're sitting as the judge in a land, and some trial is taking place in front of you. You handle it the way a good judge would. You're not overly passionate. You're not yelling and screaming and railing upon those that have maybe harmed your people or your country. You are a good and noble king in how you handle things, and yet you will still administer justice. What we don't want to be is proud, bloodthirsty despots. In other words, you're given authority, but how you handle that authority is very important. Arrogant, harsh, demeaning, disrespectful, abusive, railing, and derisive. So when we're talking about carrying this authority, I want you to be watchful of how you carry it. When you find out what you have in the kingdom of heaven, you find out that you have something greater than a nuclear bomb. And it literally could renovate the world in which we live. It can. That's what we carry. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation. However, how we carry it is very, very important. I've given this quote before, but it's my sister's quote to me years ago. Eric, you could speak truth, but if you do not speak truth the way Jesus would speak it, you're doing more harm than good. You could put the enemy in his place. You could contend with the devil and stick your hand over his neck and get him down into servile position. But if you don't do it the way Jesus would do it, you're actually doing more harm than good. Isn't that a funny statement? Choosing your kingdom, the railer or the rescuer. Jesus is the rescuer. Choose that manner. You can be the railer. That's the enemy who does that, the harsh or the humble. Satan is harsh. He's abusive, but God is humble. The abusive or the truly just. Choose your kingdom disposition. How are you going to deal with that which you've been given? You know, as you grow up in this life, you will gain greater jurisdiction, which is a ruling territory in your life. Like, for instance, as a single man, I didn't have a lot of jurisdiction. Well, when I was two or three years old, I had no jurisdiction. Then as it grows, I began to have things. I began to have space in my life, time in my schedule. Then I had money in my bank account. I'm beginning to gain jurisdiction. As you grow older, you get married. You have children. Your jurisdiction, your range of influence begins to grow. You actually have position. How do you wield that position? Because the fact that you have position or authority doesn't necessarily mean you're handling it well. For the Christian, we don't just have authoritative position, but we must be governed by the nature of God and how we wield it. The Howler Monkeys. So the Ludi family was sitting at the table a few weeks ago, and we were reading about different animals and how they reveal God. And uh, we were studying monkeys. 
And there was this one monkey that was described called the howler monkey. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a howler monkey, but it's a fairly obnoxious creature. Widely considered the loudest creature on earth. Able to be heard clearly from three miles away, even through dense forest. A surly animal, that's the way it was described, a surly animal, grave and solemn in its manner and expressions. It makes its piercing howls at dawn, dusk, and interspersed throughout the day. Now, I'm going to begin to liken this to the powers of darkness. They're howler monkeys. They're noisy. You ever notice that God speaks very calmly? God speaks very straightforwardly. The enemy howls, and you can hear him from three miles away. He's noisy, and, and you could say, well, when does he talk? Well, at, at dawn, at dusk, and interspersed throughout the day. Is that about right? This guy's loud. He's obnoxious. And all that work for him bear the same nature. They bear the same attitude. They bear the same disposition. They're rather surly. So I feel sorry for this one animal that just happens to depict very well uh, the powers of darkness. The missionary to Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, he's actually the one that shared the story about Guatamo. Does anyone dare cross the snake? So this man is on a, a mission to a village, but at that time, he had never gone to another village because of the fear. There was just plain fear. You could not cross through the jungles from village to village without crossing the demons. And so he literally trembled with fear at the notion of actually going to another village. And no one would take him and lead him through the jungle to another village. And so he had come back on furlough to the United States, and he had learned about the authoritative position that he had in Jesus Christ. And so he went back to the jungles, and he realized that his conservatism wasn't his problem. It was the fact that his conservatism was dulling his willingness to acknowledge that there was a spiritual realm. And instead of dealing with demon-possessed people as if they're demon-possessed, he needed to somehow just get around it a different way. He still had to deal with the facts that he was in a spiritual battle. And so he decided that he was going to say yes to this tribe's invitation. And yet his knees were still knocking. He had never confronted the enemy. He'd never wielded what he knew. And that's what many of us are like in here. We know maybe that we have a position, but we've not yet wielded it. We've never tested it. And that's a little scary at first. I mean, what does that mean? How do we deal with this? I don't want to be the missionary that goes out in the middle of the tribe, tells the witch doctor to dump his bag out in the middle. I do not want to stick that bark into my mouth. Don't tell me, Eric, that that's where this leads. So this missionary is on his journey, and there's one simple rule of thumb. Never cross a snake. If you step over a snake... You're a dead man. You will not live the rest of the day. That's the simple principle of the jungle. And guess what this missionary does? Yep, he steps over a snake. And so he has one guide who's got, somehow whipped up the guts to help him. And now that guide is no longer having any guts. He's like, you're going to die today. You're going to die. He's even backing up away from this guy. Get away from me. You're going to die. So the missionary beat the snake, sort of like, does that help? No, now you just stepped over a dead snake. That's a double death. You know, I don't know. How in the world could it get any worse than dying that day? But so he's sort of keeping a safe distance behind the missionary, and the missionary is making his way through, and he's trembling. He's literally afraid, even though he knows his position, he's never proven it. He's never tested it in his own soul. And, oh, I don't know how much longer through the journey it came, but there came a scream and that's the way the demons oftentimes will communicate that your time has come. A very loud horror movie-like scream comes out of the jungle. And this is dense, thick. And if you don't keep walking, you sink in the mud. 
and suddenly the missionary's legs freeze up and he starts sinking. He cannot move. His body is literally emptied of all its strength. You ever had one of those things in the middle of the night where you hear a creak in the floor? <gasps> and it's like this, this terror that strikes through your body. Well, that's exactly what he was dealing with. And he gets out this, this phrase that he'd never really used. In the name of Jesus, I resist you. That's what he said. And it wasn't anything profound. However, the, the screaming stops. And he suddenly has just enough strength to get on the next log and keep moving, even though his body's trembling. And he makes it all the way to the village. And then he talks about what happens in this village. That every other time he's dealt with a tribe, there's like a clamp over their ears. But something, it's almost as if what he shooed away was still shooed away. Because the next time he visited this village, it was chaos again, just like it had always been in a village. And he didn't take authority over the devil, or over those things that were clamping down over the ears of the hearers. And so he stepped outside and actually said, God, I'm sorry that I didn't do this, but we're going to deal with this business now. In the authority of Jesus' name, I command all of this, these spiritual powers to be gone, and I resist them in the name of Jesus. And he came back in in order. And the, the, the people actually said, what did you do out there? Because we feel different. And so he began to realize that there was something going on that he had to engage with. He couldn't be passive with it. He couldn't just see these people die under the terrors of these demons and do nothing. He recognized that he had something to bring to the table. Define the howler. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's what it says. Neither give place to the devil. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. See, we're not pushovers in this thing. We actually have equipment that can do something in response to the battle in which we are engaged. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. So the devil we are to resist steadfastly in the faith. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And they overcame him, speaking of Satan, by the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Remember the word we started with? Pale? Throwing down. Contending. Showing. Declaring to the heavenly realms that this adversary, the devil, is actually under the feet of Jesus Christ. The boys in the car. So I had just heard this story. This is a few weeks ago now. But I was dropping something off at World Market. I think I was returning something. And I, I'd left the kids in the car. And I came out, and it was just uh, Hudson and, and Dub. And they were complaining about something, like Dub was kicking the seat, and Hudson was being mean. You know, one of those types of classic brotherly battles. And... And so I decided that, you know what, this is daddy's time with them. I want this to be silenced of that kind of a thing. And so I said, hey, guys, could we stop? Daddy's going to clear the air here so that we can just have a wonderful time together and build each other up instead of this. And so I tried it. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I've taken authority over the devil in many situations, but I recognize that I oftentimes am dealing with the things that are clear to me and not the things that are affecting other people around me. Like when he talked about his audience actually having clamps over their ears, I began to realize, it's like, wait a minute. I don't know that I've actually understood how this affects other people. 
how this affects my kids and their ability to even hear the gospel when I'm sharing it, because that's one of my frustrations as a parent, is it's like, I have such good stuff to share. And they're like, hey, Daddy, can we go? Daddy, how long are you going to be talking to us? <laughs> like, hey, people pay tuitions to come and hear this. <laughs> and so the boys in the car, it was really interesting. But in this situation, I prayed, and there was absolute peace. The rest of our time together was actually amazing. It was beautiful. And so, again, it's one of those things where God, the Spirit of God is tutoring me and just clearing the air. And so it was, a, I don't know, a day or two later, but we were having some issues in the house. And I, I've told the students, I think I even said this to the, 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 the body here, but we were just having some issues in, in and amongst the kids in their behavior. So we all sat down. It was sort of a confrontational night. And uh, Daddy said, hey, guys, look, I'm going to show you something here. We're going to, you know, all these things that are causing you to just be irritable and frustrated. I want to silence all that so that we can focus on Jesus Christ here. And so I did. And it was amazing. Two hours later, the kids are still confessing sins. They literally are walking through feeling the conviction, the heat of conviction upon their souls. I've never even seen anything like this in the Ludi family. I've seen it at Ellerslie, but not in my kids. And so it was interesting is it was tied to what I'm talking about with you, is that I recognize that there is a battle, and this battle isn't just affecting me, it's affecting everyone around me. And so therefore, if I see someone drowning, what should I do? What if I have something that I can bring to the table to help them? Should I sit in my park bench and go, they need to figure it out for themselves? Or should I rise up and help? Help with the tools, the weapons that God has given me. The Sheep Brigade, the unstoppable military force of dumb, woolly creatures. That's us. I'm sorry to call you a dumb, woolly creature. God's the one that calls us sheep. Sheep are, it's not a compliment when we're called sheep, by the way. I know they're sort of cute. Uh, but they're good meat, and they're slow, and they have no ability to defend themselves. And God says, yeah, that's you. The enemy loves to devour you. We're good meat. We taste good. Have you ever tasted lamb? Yeah, that's us. We are that. And so as a result, the enemy is after us. If you don't have a shepherd, you're in trouble. However, as sheep, we begin to realize that God has mobilized us into a brigade, into a military unit. Have you ever thought of a worse idea than that? Come to earth and say, I'm going to pick some sheep as my military instrument. What kind of thought is that? Well, God has a great sense of humor. You see, he is holding in contempt the devil. Even with how he chooses us, he's taking the weak things of this world to shame that which is wise. So here's the short list. We are to be super conquering. They are more than conquerors. We are to be bequeathed with all power and authority, seated in Christ Jesus in the heavenly position of power and authority, given power over all the power of the enemy to tread upon their high places. We're to be immovable and invincible, able to repel all the fiery darts of the enemy, able to tread on lions, adders, serpents, scorpions, and dragons, able to drink poison and be unharmed. A thousand shall fall at our side, ten thousand at our right hand, but it shall not come near us. There shall not a hair of our head perish. Jesus gives us unto us eternal life, and, they sh and we shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck us out of his hand. And nothing shall in any wise hurt us. We're also supposed to be fearless. The Lord is our light and our salvation, so whom shall we fear? The Lord is the strength of our life, so of whom shall we be afraid? Though a host should encamp against us, our hearts shall not fear. And though war should rise up against us, 
we shall remain confident in our God because God will never leave us nor forsake us. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in our trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. And no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against us in judgment, God shall condemn. We're also supposed to be, as the church, unstoppable. The Lord is with us as a mighty, terrible one. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Whatsoever that we shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever we shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Since God is for us, who can be against us? This is just sheep logic. This is the way we think. We do not fear what's in the bag of witchcraft. Well, it's unknown. I mean, these things have harmed many people. Look, entire villages are under the thumb of it. And you are not. You see, these people are drowning. What's missions work? It's seeing people drown and knowing that you have something to bring to the table that can help them. You can't save them. And yet you have that which they need. And so our response, leaning on the spirit of grace, is to say, God, use this as your vessel to rescue the drowning people of this earth. The in that empowers. In, in the New Testament, there is this concept of location or position. And the term that Paul uses over and over and over again is the concept of being in Christ. And if you hang around Ellis, you hear this all the time. What's your position, students? So we know our position. And yet, there's the in that empowers. You see, when you are in, you have power. That's the key. If you are not in, you do not have this authority. The authority is bequeathed to those that are in Christ. And so we're going to talk about the in that empowers. Put on the whole armor of God. If you are putting on the whole armor of God, you know what that means? That means you are in armor. And that armor is Jesus Christ. It is his life that he has given us. He has shed his blood and he he literally sews it together into a robe. It's called the robe of righteousness or the garments of salvation. And God over and over and over throughout the New Testament says, put it on. Put it on. Enter into it. So when you are in the armor, well, then it says that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You see, when you are in Christ, well, then you can stand. You see, this is the same context of wrestling. We are contending with the devil, and yet we can't do this in our own strength. God's given us the equipment. He says, here's the armor. You see, at the cross, he purchased us the avenue through which we could enter into armor. We could enter into him. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resists steadfast in the faith? You see, there's this position. And the Bible describes it in all sorts of different ways. But we are in a position. And when we are in that position, it's called being in Christ. It's called being in the name of Jesus. When we pray, how do we pray? We pray in the name. And when we are in Christ, we're also in the faith. We are in him. So when we are whom resists steadfast, in the faith. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb. And what you'll notice all throughout scripture is this this blood actually is a covering. It actually clothes us, just like the Passover lamb. They smeared the, the blood on the doorpost. Well, that's the way it is for us. We literally, on the doorpost of our house, have blood. We are sealed in and covered. We are surrounded with a shield. Off with the old and on with the new. You see, we're wearing something. 
It's either we're wearing our old life or our old man, or we're wearing Jesus Christ. You, you have clothing. And so we have to put off the old man. It's called Adam. You see, there's two clothings, Adam, and if you stay in Adam's clothing, it's called the first birth, and you will receive the condemnation that Adam would receive. You see, Adam is symbolic of that which is of the flesh, that which is under condemnation and judgment. But Jesus has made a way for us to be born anew, to be born again. And when we are born again, we throw off the old life, and we become a new man in Christ Jesus. And so off with the old and on with the new. For in him, where, where's, where does this fullness dwell? In him, in Jesus. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. But how do you receive the circumcision or the emblem of covenant? It's being in him. When you enter into him, you know what that means? The flesh is cut off. For a very simple enunciation of circumcision, for those of you that don't know what it is, it is the cutting off of the flesh. So look at that in the New Testament. It's the cutting off and the severing of the flesh. It's putting off the flesh. And how do you have that? By entering into Christ. Put off the old, put on the new. In putting off the body of sins, the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. That you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. This is what, what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to put off the old man. It's like, take it off. It's called repentance. Turn from your old unto a new. Change your entire disposition to how you're going to live. No longer you're going to live this way. You're going to live this way. Which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Put it off. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Didn't you know that you're supposed to have done this? Christianity 101. Repent. Turn from your old unto a new. Forsake your life as you know it and enter into a new life. When you are born again, that means all things become new. It's like a start over. And so you don't try and hold on to your old life. You give up your old life. So many of us have heard a version of Christianity that just tries to modify our old life. It's not how Christianity works. It's a death. You die so that you can live. You forsake the old so that you can have the new. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we just talked about putting off. Now we're talking about putting on. And for those of us that were baptized, and I'm going to go into the word baptizo, which is the Greek word here, because a lot of people get confused and think that to be in Christ, they have to go in and out of water. They have to be sprinkled, well, however you would look at that. And yet that's actually not what it means. It, baptism means to be put into something. And so for as many of you as have been put into Christ have put on Christ. It's sort of like as many of you have gotten into the armor are in the armor basically the same thing. But put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's just the gospel in the Old Testament. 
Exploring the meaning of in. The Hebrew mystery. Hebrew mystery for the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Its, its name is Beit. But the word actually, it, the interesting thing about the Hebrew is it's an alphanumeric language. So the lettering, actually, each letter is equivalent to a numeral value, a number, and it's also equivalent to a meaning. So like for us, if we have the letter B, it's very boring. It just means, what does B mean? If someone asks you that, what does B mean? What's the value of B? Uh, It doesn't have a value. That's where the numbers come in. So it doesn't have a value? No, no, it doesn't have a value. What does it mean? It it means... uh, B. B is not a, a, it's not a word to us. Whereas in the Hebrew, bait is actually a word. It's a concept. It's a holder for an idea. And so the whole language is made up of these 22 holders of ideas. And when you combine them together, it's like a canvas. And you're taking this color of paint, this color of paint, and this color of paint, and weaving them together into a tapestry. And so every word in the Hebrew can be understood just by breaking it into its parts and saying, so I can, I actually understand where that word came from. It came from these three letters, which put together mean that. I mean, it's truly extraordinary. And so the Hebrew mystery of Beit, the alphanumeric alphabet, the second in the Hebrew alphabet is the letter Beit. Now that's very important because remember how I said you could have two clothing, two clothings. You could have the first clothing, which is Adam, or you could have the second clothing, which is Jesus. You see, Jesus is the second. I know that sounds strange, but he's the one that comes in the power of the Spirit. The first is known in Scripture as the flesh. The first, God doesn't receive. The second, God receives. So the first, Cain, God rejects his offering, but accepts the second offering of Abel. And then you have Ishmael. Ishmael is the firstborn of Abraham, and God says, no, 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 that's not how it works. That's of the flesh. But he accepts Isaac, the second. Esau and Jacob are twins. And God chooses the second. First one's hairy all over. He's a hunter. He's the ultimate pick. God chooses the second, the plain man dwelling in tents? Come on, God, what are you doing? What are you thinking? God always chooses the second. Because it's showing that it's the second. It's God, Jesus is called the second man. He's the last Adam. You have Adam, and then you have Jesus. You have the old covenant, and then you have the new covenant. You must be born again. You must enter into the second. If you don't enter into the second, you don't have life. So, bait is the second letter in the Hebrew. You know what it means? Get this. It means in. It means house. And then he said, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Bait. So this is the ancient pictograph, which is a symbol of a tent. And that's a little opening to it. You can see the door. There's a little room in there. And it actually means tent, house, or inn. Isn't that fascinating? Bait. The four dimensions to the word. So we already have two of them. It's the second letter. And again, each Letter actually means a number, too, and the number for it is two. It's the second. And then we have tent, house, or in. The spelling of bait, when you pronounce a Hebrew word or a Hebrew, even a Hebrew letter, you say it, and you say bait. Well, when you say that, you're actually combining two different Hebrew letters together. You're combining the bait for b, and you're, com- and you're actually hearing the 
t sound, which is a tav, which is the 22nd letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so they write from right to left. And what you're going to see is, from, for a Greek, for a Gentile, we read from left to right. What are you going to read when you see that? The cross brings us in to the house. Isn't that amazing? Even in the Hebrew letter. It doesn't matter. You can read it from the right to the left and say, how do I get in the house? Oh, I need the cross. It doesn't matter how you read it. You're going to come to the same conclusion. But that's even woven into the Hebrew word bait. So the meaning. When you combine those two letters together, it means a surname or the family from which you come. So it means the second. It means a tent, house, or inn. And then it also means in the crosswork or bearing the mark. See, the, even the symbol, the ancient symbol for tav, or the t sound, is a cross. Isn't that amazing? So it's like the inn and then the cross combined. Bait is a pretty profound concept, pretty profound letter for the new birth into the generations of Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus Christ, we are born again. Now we have a new surname. No longer is our surname Adam, Eric of Adam. No, now we're Eric of Jesus Christ. I have a new family tree. I'm grafted in. This is all found in this one letter. What does the Bible say about this? If you were to study this concept in Scripture, I'm giving you a little cheat sheet here that I've worked on over the years, but in Christ, you could study that in the Bible, in whom, in him, in the Lord, in God, in the Holy One of Israel, in his name, in the name, in the Spirit, in me, in my love, in his love. So let's talk about getting in, baptize. To baptize means in the Greek to permanently immerse, to place inside, to put in for the purpose of permanent change and not temporal covering. You see, when we baptize in a lake, for instance, it's only a picture of real baptism because it means to permanently immerse. Could you imagine? I'm like holding you down. You're like, blah, 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 and I'm like, hey, it says in the Greek, permanent. That's not how it works, though. It is a permanent immersion, but not in water. That's only a symbol of entering into the death, burial, and cleansing of the shed blood of Jesus and then rising again to newness of life. But we are being permanently immersed in something, in the person of Jesus. He's our strong tower. So to permanently immerse, to place inside, to put in for the purpose of permanent change and not temporal covering. So there's, <coughs> there's two words in the Greek I want to introduce you to. One is bapto, which means to dip, to dip in, to temporarily immerse. Okay, a lot of us have this notion of just a temporary, temporary you just like bloop, and come back out. However... Jesus answered, it is he whom, shall, whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped or baptoed it. So this is a temporary dip. And having dipped or embaptoed the bread, I added the uh, little helps on there to, to, to let you see it. He gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So that's to dip temporarily. Okay, That's how it's used in scripture. And then baptizo is the word that is used for what we typically understand as baptism. Okay, To dip in and keep in. To immerse and not remove. Isn't that amazing? Baptizo. So in Strong's Concordance, it says, this word should not be confused with bapto. The clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo is a text from the Greek poet and physician Nicander who lived about 200 BC. It is a recipe for making pickles and is helpful because it uses both words. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, 
Isn't that funny? Just the word pickle makes us laugh. There's something just not poetic about that word. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should be first dipped or baptized in boiling water and then baptized, baptized in the vinegar solution. Both verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution, but the first is temporary. The second, the act of baptizing the vegetable produces a permanent change. So you stick that cucumber in the vinegar and you keep it in the vinegar. And what do you have? And typically what they would say is 40 days later, you have a pickle. It's an altogether different substance. We don't say that a cucumber and a pickle are the same food. They're a different food. And yet, they're sort of the same. Well, how about you and your old life? Still the same name. I'm still lugging around Eric Ludi as my name. I tried to get rid of it and sort of be like one of those Saul to Paul things, you know. I could be Ernie Ludi now. <laughs> but guess what? Same name, but different person. I've been baptized into Christ. And as a result, I was immersed and I was kept in. And as a result, my life is different. I'm a different food group. I'm a different type of human on earth. I'm not like that. I'm like him now. And so as a result, there's a change. To baptize, to permanently immerse, to place inside, to put in for the purpose of permanent change and not temporal covering. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. You know who's talking? This is Jesus talking. And he says, I have a baptism, a baptizo, to be baptized with. I have an immersion, and it's not just a temporary little dip. I'm entering into a baptism. And it says, how distressed I am till it is accomplished. It says in the, in the King James, straightened. He's pressed. He must get this done. He is narrow in his focus. He knows what he came to do, and he will accomplish it. It's a baptism. He was coming for a baptism. Christ's baptism. He took on my death. He entered into its separation. See, he was baptized into my position. What's amazing about Christianity is we have an invite into his life. But to get into his life, he had to make a way. And so what he did is he came and he took on my Adam. He took on my position so that he could rescue me from it. He took on my death. He entered into its separation. He took on my shame. He received my full wage for sin. He took on my curse. He hung despised on a tree reserved for the most despicable in Israel. To hang on a tree in Israel is the highest of ill repute. It is the most shameful thing. It's a symbol of a curse. He took on my sorrows. He entered into the holy displeasure and punishment of a righteous and just God. He took on my sufferings. He entered into the ravages of a sin-riddled world. He took on my Adam position. He entered into my human state, my lowly place of condemnation. He took on my poverty. He entered into my earthly wanderings, calling my home his very own. He took on my grave. He entered into my just and appropriate earthly end. The baptism exchange. Last week we talked about covenant, and we talked about the fact that covenant is an exchange. Well, this is sort of the same with this. This is the covenant. We're exchanging. He's taking on our lowly position so that we can take on his high position. It's so unjust if you want to look at it that way. There is no way that he would do this for us. It's inappropriate that the king of heaven would come so low to help us go so high. We are the ones that are deserving of being cut off, of those sorrows, of that grief, of that condemnation. We are. And yet he has borne it for us. 
He took on my death that I may take on his sonship. He took on my shame that I may take on his favor and bear his glory. He took on my sorrows that I may take on his joy. Imagine Jesus coming up to us and say, will you give me your clothing? We're like, why would you want this? So that I can give you my clothing. He literally asks for our life. Have you ever noticed that we like fight to give up our old life? The life that is condemned, why in the world would we fight this issue? Just let it go. So that you can receive his sonship. So you can receive his favor and bear his glory. So you can take on his joy. Who would ever fight this? And yet, probably every single one of us in here has had a wrestling match on this point. It's like, God, you're asking too much. You can't ask for everything. Uh, He's given you everything. He's given you life and life abundant. You're not in a negotiating position, by the way. I don't know if anyone's broken that to you. He took on my sufferings that I may take on his comfort. He took on my Adam position that I may take on his kingly position. He took on my poverty that I may take on his inheritance. Baptized into his baptism. So one of the key things we talk about here at Ellerslie is what Paul talks about in Romans 6. And that is reckoning ourselves dead indeed unto sin. You see, I don't know how many of you have died and been resurrected in a physical sense. But in a spiritual sense, when we enter into Christ, we've died. And we've been resurrected. I know it sounds strange, but that's how it works. It's because you're being baptized and being put in to his working. He did something 2,000 years ago. He accomplished it. And so when we are baptized and we put on Jesus, we actually put on what he's accomplished. And so when he went to that cross, guess what? If you're in him, if you were immersed in him, remember like that cucumber? Bloop! If you were stuck in that vinegar, or in this case, in Jesus, then when he went to that cross, did you know that when he died, you died? Your old man is now dead. And when he was buried, did you know that you were buried? You see, you're baptized into his baptism. He did the work for the old man. He cut him off. He disabled the powers of darkness over this life and over your lives. And when you enter into his baptism, you actually have newness of life. You have his death, you have his burial, you have his resurrection, but you have something even greater than that. You have his position. You see, his death and you entering into that death leads you to that burial, and it's a discarding of an old life. It's a bearing, so it's no longer seen in this world, and then entering into his death and his burial causes you to actually share in his resurrection, his newness of life. And then where did he go next? He went to the right hand of the Father. Where are you located? What's your position? If you're in Christ, you go where he goes. And that's what it says in Ephesians. Romans 6, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You see, we were baptized into his work. We were baptized into his baptism. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Baptized into his position. Not just baptized into his death, not just baptized into his burial, not just baptized into his resurrection life, but baptized into his position. I have no business hanging out in that high and holy place. The place where the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. 
I can't enter in. I, I don't know if you've checked your own pockets to see if you've earned up enough righteousness to get in there. None of us can. All of us fall short, and we're cut off from such a presence. But when we're in him, guess what? There's one man, one, that has actually lived the life that is worthy to enter in. And where are you located? In that life. You know the secret to entering into that near and dear place of heavenly communion? It's in who you know and who you turn to. It's in your clothing. If you're in Christ, you have access unto the throne room of grace. That's why he says, come boldly. Well, don't come boldly if you're not clothed. If you're clothed in Adam, by the way, you'll be struck down. Oh, no. But if you're in Christ, come boldly. Come boldly unto the throne room of grace where you may obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need. He was baptized into my position that I might put on his position. Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. By grace you have been saved and raised us up, raised us up together. Listen to this. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, when you know your position in Christ, you recognize that you're where he is. You see, physically, I recognize that your body's here. I'm not trying to live in some imaginary realm. Your body physically is down here. However, there's another dimension to you, and it's an eternal dimension. It's the part of you that will live with Christ forever. Right now, you're here, and yet you're in Christ. His body's there, and your spirit is in him. And do you know where his spirit lives? Here. It's an exchange. You see, he took on our body that we may take on his and still he takes on our body. And he allows it to be his clothing down here because he has clothed us in, clothed us in, clothed, that's a hard word to say, clothed us in his body there. He's made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The baptism exchange. He took on my death that I may take on his sonship. He took on my shame that I may take on his favor and bear his glory. He took on my sorrows that I may take on his joy. He took on my sufferings that I may take on his comfort. He took on my Adam position that I may take on his kingly position. He took on my poverty that I may take on his inheritance. Now listen to this. And even now, he takes on my body and wears it as his own. And I take on his body and I'm seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father in the person of Christ. And what do we call the church? The body of Christ. We are actually the hands and feet to do the work of the king of kings down here in this earth. Physically, I am here, but spiritually, I am there in him. Physically, he is there, but spiritually, he is here in me. It's the great mystery of godliness. That's what it's called. It's the great mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's what it is. It's a mystery. Uh, you have to admit it's quite a mystery. It's a little strange to all of us rational thinkers spiritually discerned. It's something only the Spirit of God can alert us to and communicate to us. Everyone else might hold it in contempt and laugh. I choose to believe it, and as a result, I'm a very happy man. 
and it, it works. I can stick that bark between my teeth and not be afraid of it. A rat bone, or maybe it was a rat tail. Fish bone, pig bone, bat wing, yuck. And guess what? We need not fear. The mystery hidden for ages and generations. The mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this whole time we've been talking about in. You in Christ. But the great crowning jewel of the gospel isn't us being in Christ. It's what that affords us. And that is that our body may become the dwelling place of God Almighty. And now He is in us. And we become the temple of God. We become the house. That's that's Christianity. That's how the world will know. The world will not know just because I'm seated. It's because Christ is seated in me. And He takes this body and these hands begin to do the work of the King. These eyes, this mind is called the mind of Christ. This mouth begins to speak the oracles of the King. The word of God in this generation. This heart beats with the burdens of God. And these feet take me into all the world to preach the gospel. We're the body of Christ. We've become the dwelling place of the clothing for the king of kings. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Listen to what I'm saying here is the summation of everything we've talked about. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. How will you know? What will it look like? What is the signal statement on the matter? Because he has given us of his spirit. God Almighty, the third person of the Trinity, moves in. God. Don't don't think of it as weird for those of you that lean conservative and are a little afraid of what might happen by even mentioning the Holy Spirit. It's like, oh, did it go out loud? Was it said out loud? It's okay. He's God. He's safe. If you like Jesus, you love the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one that introduced you to Jesus. You wouldn't even know Jesus if you didn't have the Spirit. The Spirit of God is speaking. He's working. He's laboring to reveal to you the gospel. He's safe. Just because he's been abused, just because people have run roughshod over his name, doesn't mean you have to. Don't ignore him. But open up your life and say, this is your body. Live inside of it. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. How, how would it come upon the Gentiles? How would we get grafted into the inheritance of Israel? How would we get it? Oh, in Christ. You see, we can actually put off our Gentileness, that which separates us from God, that which forces the Hebrew culture to call us dogs. We're cut off from the commonwealth, the blessing of Israel, the blessing of Abraham. And yet, when we believe and we turn from our sin, the gospel is unto the Jew and the Gentile. And all of us that turn and will throw off the husk of Adam and give up our old life and come unto Jesus are clothed in him. And as a result, we are now in Christ Jesus, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us. Oh, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, this is the signal, the statement in this natural realm. How will you know his disciples? How will you know? It's a, it's a, it's a statement or an attribute that we can't mimic. Have you ever heard it that by your love for one another? 
Uh, that's what it says. Well, guess what? You can't mimic heavenly love. So you need the Spirit of God, also known as the Spirit of love. He specializes in it. And he comes and fills this life and actually enables you to love. And that becomes a signal to everyone around says, yep, that's a believer. They have the Spirit of God within them. They're bearing the fruit of heaven, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So how were you sealed? In him. So when you are in him, you are then sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is the benefits of being in. Combating the howlers. You tired of those howlers? I don't know how many of you have been followed around by those nagging voices, those howler monkeys. Oh. And some of you have just accepted it. You see, there's a form of passivity which is very dangerous, and that is passivity of soul. Passivity to the howler monkeys. You are not a victim, and no longer should you ever echo that idea in your soul that, well, look what life I got dealt out. It's a hard life. I have all sorts of things that come against me. Don't sit by idly in your park bench while your soul drowns. You actually have a position in Christ Jesus to resist that devil and see him silenced, to see him brought down to the mat and under the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. You're sheep. What could you do? Well, you're sheep with a shepherd. And your shepherd, you simply look up at him and he says, march, go straight at the wolf. Like, well, I'm a sheep. Yeah, with a shepherd. You see, we are in the shadow of the Almighty. And when we rest that close to the shepherd, when he walks, we walk. And he walks straight towards that bag of witchcraft. And he dumps it out. Just stick it in your teeth. Hey, Eric, stick it between your teeth. Oh, that's gross. It's all so weird. And it's demonic stuff. It's defeated. It's just a piece of bark. It has no power over you. None. Some of us are still sort of mystical about it. It's like, I don't know. I mean, it's been in that bag. Well, then stick your nose in the bag. <laughs> nothing here. Shine light in it. You will find it's nothing more than rotten berries and bark. There's nothing there. It is emptied of its power. It is under his feet. Don't believe the lie. Lies thrive in darkness. They thrive in mysterious bags of witchcraft. Open it up and dump it. You see, God is not afraid. And if you're in him, you have nothing to be afraid of. Combating the howlers. How about the howlers over your individual body and life? I want you to practice today taking authority, resisting the devil. It's that simple. If you have the howler monkey coming against you, silence it. You might feel a little green in the process. Like, uh, uh. There was this one story in the jungle of this demon that came into the house. And when a demon comes into the house, it always kills someone. This is the way the tribes look at it. And the demon came in and it was headed towards his second wife, this man's second wife, who he really liked. His first wife, he wouldn't have cared if he'd gone after this, his first wife. Isn't that terrible? That's what he said. I didn't say this. And he's coming after his second wife, who he actually loved. So he's like, oh, no. And so he rises up and he says, the missionary told me <laughs> that if I resist you in the name of Jesus, that you have to go. So in the name of Jesus, you go. And he went. So this guy's like, whoa. 
Have you ever practiced? So like the preacher said this morning that if I, well, you don't need to bring me into it. (laughs) However, there is an authority that you have, but you must know that you have that authority and that authority is found in Christ. It's not in you. Do not tackle any of these powers in your own strength any more than I would ever encourage a sheep to tackle a wolf pack in its own strength. You tackle it in the authority of the bigger one, the authority of the shepherd, and you silence it. I don't want you to fixate or focus on any demonic thing any more than is necessary to see it silenced and to see it eliminated from having any power over your life. How about dealing with the howler monkeys over the Christian marriage? Any of us ever thought about, you know, when you start talking, you start bickering every time, that maybe you should actually begin to address these things spiritually? Instead of just saying, yeah, I'm a victim to this frustration... No? Why don't you begin to address that which is trying to come in and disrupt? Because it's not the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God does not bring disruption to a marriage. The Spirit of God brings health and life. However, to the Christian home, you could stop your kids like I've done. Hey, guys, let's just practice this. Remember what uh, Pastor Eric said this morning? Let's just practice this. You see, we have not learned to wield the authority we have, and we have drowning souls all around us over the church. Well, guess what? Where do you think the enemy's going to stick his best and brightest and most powerful? He wants to stop us. The enemy have I say this a lot, but let me say it again. It's worth repeating. The enemy has limited resources. The enemy only has one-third of all the angelic host. That means God has double, and he's God. So the enemy is weak, but the enemy wants to appear big. He wants to appear omnipresent. He's not. He's not unlimited. He's not infinite, and he's not omnipresent, and he's not all-knowing either. He's limited. So he targets that which would have the greatest rate of return. He wants to stop Christian marriage. That's a big spot. He wants to stop Christian family, and he wants to hinder Christian church. If he does that, what does he have? If we have bad marriages, you know what? We have bad families. If we have bad families, you know what? We have bad churches. And if the church is sour in our generation, guess what? Do you think he has any fear? He's not going to spend any more resource than is necessary, but he's going to spend everything that he needs to stop you. And as a result, dump out the bag of witchcraft. Don't fear what the enemy can do. Say, whoa, so you want to come against my marriage, all right? I just learned about my position in Jesus Christ. You're going to have to reckon with him because I, know now, I now know my position. This one is a key one that has been stirring within me, and that is over those deaf to the truth of Jesus Christ. I get frustrated as a pastor with the fact that there is such a dullness of hearing today. Everyone seems to be very quick to hear the mush, the junk, the trifling notions of what truth could be or what the gospel is in this twisted way. But when the true gospel comes out, it's sort of like, ah, and they make all this noise. It's like, hey, people, be silent for just a moment and listen. One of the lines in Leslie's new book that she's just working on now is, it's a book to women, and she says, the entire publishing industry is based around the likes and the whims of women. Women are the buyers. Men, I guess, don't read. And so women are the buyers. So Christian radio is all based around women. Christian book publishing is all based around women. So what if the women finally said, you know what? Give us a feast instead of this fluff. Everything changes. Well, that's just a word to all of you women in here. Whatever I say doesn't matter. You know, if I say, hey, guys, we need some meat. Well, no one will buy it. Eric, it's not your bank account that will be affected by that. It's ours. We need meat. 
We need the substance of the true gospel once again in this generation. Well, maybe we should start addressing it spiritually. At Ellerslie, we do, so I'm not saying we haven't, but proactively recognizing how this battle works, that which is deafening the ears of those that God has called, it must be unblocked. They must hear. In the name of Jesus, how do we pray? We pray in a position, and it's a very near position. You see, you're down here physically, but where are you seated? You're seated in heavenly places. So when you pray, pray from that heavenly place. Don't pray from down here. Pray right there in Christ Jesus. Right there next to the Father. Technically, Christ is in the Father. They're one. And so if you're in Christ, you're in the Father. That's how close you are when you're praying to the Father. So Father, here you are, literally in him. Father, can you think of a, can you think of a spot nearer or dearer to the Father's heart? right there in his heart praying and all the promises of God are yes and amen even before you ask whatsoever you ask in the name of Jesus will be done you are in a very strong position to accomplish things here on this earth I see someone drowning God can you help that person that's drowning what do you think he's gonna say he's the one showing you the drowning person he's the one saying pray ask you see When you are in Christ Jesus, you are near. You are close. And the answer is yes. When the prayers you pray are in agreement with God, when they're in agreement with what he's after in this world, and you have a burden for it, you have a very strong case at the throne room. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, this is sort of awkward for some of us in here. We're like, oh no, not a binder and looser. That's a certain type of Christian today that's just all wild-eyed about demons and everything, and they're binding and loosing. Well, guess what? This is scripture and this is Jesus talking. So whatever type of graffiti is on it for you, let's, let's clean it off. This is scripture. And for whatever reason, we are in a position to do something. I, I think it's imperative that we know what we are in a position to do. So here's our first word for bind. It's deo, which means to fasten, to tie, to lock in chains, to forbid, to prohibit. It's the concept of arresting the enemy's plans. The enemy has an agenda, but you actually have a key. You have been given weapons of a warfare to actually hinder his ability to wield those plans. You can actually undermine his plans, or in this case, you get to fasten or to tie. Oftentimes when I'm praying, I'll say hog tie, because I don't want to say bind, because that makes me sound sort of wild-eyed. So hog tie the enemy, and then I feel better about it. (laughs) To fasten, to tie, to lock in chains, tie him up. He has no right coming in here. No ability. We actually have this weaponry. I know it might sound strange to some of you, but I'm not making stuff up here. And the second word, lyle. This is one that causes a lot of confusion because most people don't study this. They just say, oh, let's bind and loose. So when it comes to the loose, it's like, what do we loose? Well, we loose peace and love and all these things. Well, that's not exactly what it means here. It actually means to unfasten or untie, to break up that which is compacted to dissolve, to dismiss, to do away with, to destroy the enemy's long-held strongholds. It actually means to dissolve a stronghold. So it's like a nest, and it's like, it just sort of falls apart. There's no more coordination of the enemy. 
And so when you're dealing with your own soul and you have fear, it's an operation, you could even call it a stronghold of the enemy, and it's working inside of you, well, don't take that. You've actually been given the authority to loose that, to see that it breaks up and to see that the enemy can't come back and continue it. And when you're dealing with other souls, you actually have the ability to deal with these strongholds, to deal with these nests, to see them dissolved. Uh, am I coming across wild-eyed? Or is this just what the word says? Reckoning the position of the church. Eight R's that change everything. I don't know, I might have changed this to nine R's. So there could be nine. Is there nine in the list? First, to resist. To resist the devil and he will flee. Another way of thinking about this is repelling. He cannot enter. If, I'm, if I have a house and I have a door, well, this is like the door that actually swings out and knocks him out of the block, too. To resist. It's not just to close the door, but it's actually swing it out and knock him out of my property. It's like, no, you're not coming in. Kaboom. Well, I guess it's one of those doors in like a restaurant, right, that swings both ways. I like that thought. To ruin to ruin is the concept that we're dealing with with loose. It's to actually spoil it. The enemy has a plan, but in a sense, what you're doing is hindering or spoiling it. The milk gets left out on the counter and no longer is it good milk. Well, we have whatever authority it is to actually see the enemy's plans ruined and foiled. To renounce. When we, renounce is a legal term, renunciation. When you have said yes to the devil, it's like you have agreed with him legally. And as a result, you've given place to the devil in your life. And so the concept of renouncing is legally taking your position in Christ and saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce any connection I have with fear. Anything I've given over, I now take back in Christ Jesus. So the concept is to renounce or to retract. So yes, you did have a contract, but now you are retracting in a higher authority because at the cross, that power of your previous compact or covenant was annulled because the only thing that can annul a covenant is death. Well, guess what? You entered into his death. And as a result, your previous covenant with death is now annulled. Your previous covenant with darkness is now annulled in Christ Jesus, in his shed blood. And so you now have the privileged position to say, ah, oh, yeah. I am not accountable to that contract or that covenant that I have with darkness anymore. No! And you have the authority to renounce. Now, instead of wrestle, I couldn't think of an R word for wrestle, so it became to wrestle. <laughs> you are given authority and you're given a position and a strength to actually throw down the enemy, to actually see him pinned to not be able to continue doing what he's doing. To request which is to receive. It's an amazing thing, but in your position, you can now make requests in the name of Jesus. If we could truly awaken to our position, how would we be changed? But that we oftentimes have this position and do nothing with it. Your prayer life is a great definition of if you are taking your position seriously. Because when you are in this position, you know your position, what would you do with this position? It's sort of like seeing all these people drowning, knowing that you have inner tubes that you can throw out to them and holding on to them. Well, why would you do that? Well, I have an inner tube. That's really all I cared about is that I had one. So you wear it around your middle and walk around on the beach. You're fine. Throw it out there. You've been given this so that you can give it. You've been given this authority and this position to make requests because God wants to use you as a house of prayer for all nations, as one who is a rescuer, one who is giving of the strength that he's given to you.
to resolve. One of the key things that you may be feeling today, even as, we, as you hear this, have you ever felt that passivity and that dullness of soul? It's just sort of like, oh, I just don't feel like it. Yeah, yeah, it's a very familiar thing within the soul of the lethargic church today. However, here's what I want you to try. I want you to buck the system. And I want you to, in Christ, resolve. And let him fill your sail with wind. I want him to fill it. You can't do it. See, what oftentimes you're waiting for is you're trying to get some wind in your sails. Oh, but when you resolve and you take a step forward, then comes the wind. We're waiting for the wind and then we'll walk forward spiritually. But in Christ, you have a grace to resolve to say, I agree with scripture and then take a step forward. So do it. Resolve today to no longer languish in self-pity, to no longer languish in defeat, but to walk forward in the authority of Jesus Christ to rejoice. I love this one. We have a position to access the joy of God. And so no matter what happens in this natural realm to our body that's sitting here, we can rejoice. We have access to joy. We have access to joicing. But rejoicing means to do it over and over and over again. It never runs dry. That well of joy, you can always pull on it in any situation. Falsely accused, uh, slandered, uh, you're mocked and ridiculed. Guess what? You got joy, pull it out of the world. There it is. It's always available to us. You have joy and you can rejoice. Eight, to remember. You see, you have repented and you have entered into Christ, but have you ever noticed that you can become dull in that situation, sit on your park bench and pretty soon people are dying all around you and you numb to the cries? And the whole while you keep going to church and you're going through your thing and you're talking about people drowning, you're like, oh, it's so sad, isn't it? It's like, uh, do you remember? In Christ, we have remembrance. We have the remembrance of what we need to do in that situation. Repent and return. Two more R's. We must always remember. What do you think communion is? Communion is a remembrance, a bringing back to the beginnings of covenant, to understanding what we have in Christ. And now the fact that we are his territory. And he is in us. We have access to remembrance, to the power to remember. You ever felt like everything you have spiritually is just very easily taken away? Well, I want you to resolve today to say, no, the enemy can't have these things anymore. He can't just have everything that comes into my life just go out like it's sand through a sieve. No. No, I'm going to hold on to these things because I'm in Christ. This is something you have. Take it. Now, there's supposed to be nine. The last one, see if I can remember it now. To not rail. To not, it's what we don't do. To not rail, but to put down the enemy with kingly honor. In other words, we are in a high position. But how we wield that position is just as critical as us having that position. We don't mock the enemy. We behave as Jesus Christ in all circumstances. We do hold it in contempt, and we do not submit to it, and we know it is an unlawful hold on everyone, so we exert the authority we have in Christ. But let's not handle our position in a way that is contrary to the very Spirit of God that dwells within us. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's how we started out this message. So look, look at the final weapon that we have, the final piece of armament that we have. 
praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So one of the things I want us to begin to practice as the church of Jesus Christ is how to stand in our position and pray always. I know it sounds sort of ridiculous to pray always, but I don't care how ridiculous it sounds. It's a command to pray without ceasing is the other way that it's said in Scripture. To pray without stopping, which you can look at in multiple ways, and that means when you're pulling on that rope to get the promise down from heaven, you continue to pull until it gets here. That's praying without ceasing. The other way is that we constantly abide in a state of prayer. We understand the battle we're in, and we understand the significance of our position. So we abide in that position, in Jesus, in the Father, and make our requests known constantly. If you're talking with someone in the coffee shop that needs to know Jesus, what do you do? You begin to pray. You begin to take that position in Christ Jesus and wield it. Even while you're talking, you're holding your position, and you know the position you have. Are you afraid of what's in that bag of witchcraft? No. Is there ever a point in time where you need to be afraid? No, you abide in that position, and abiding that position is part of what prayer is. All right, let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.